Well, let's continue in worship this morning, beloved. If you are a guest with us, we are studying the letter of 1 Peter. We have been in chapter 2 since the planting of this church on August the 15th. We are almost about to wrap it up. We have this week and next week, and then we will begin chapter 3. And I'm sure the ladies are looking forward to starting chapter 3. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking principally this morning at verse 24. But I will back up and to give context, begin at verse 18. And I'll read all the way through verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Household slaves... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, as we come to you week in and week out, we confess to you again that apart from your spirit, apart from the mediatorship of Jesus Christ, apart from his sacrifice, apart from the efficacy of his outpoured blood for us, this word is unintelligible. We will not understand rightly what you are communicating to us. I cannot understand to preach it, and these, your sheep, cannot understand to feast upon it that it might change their lives. So, Lord, we ask you this morning for the help of your Holy Spirit. Because of the blood of Jesus, because of his bearing of our sins in his body on the tree, that we here this morning might realize that we have been enabled. We have been set free from our bondage to sin and corruption and the curse. That we might live to righteousness. Help us to see a vivid and clear picture this morning of how truly healed each of us in Christ is here today. It is in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, as I've mentioned in weeks past, for several weeks now, we have been considering what the Apostle Peter calls 
the pattern of Christ. In your translation, it might read pattern of Christ or an example for you to follow. Jesus has brought us this material through the mind of the Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's given these instructions to household slaves in regards to submitting to their masters. He's reminding them that if they suffer at the hands of a harsh master for doing what God requires, then they are fulfilling their calling to be just like their Lord. Well, before we get into today's text, I want to make something clear at the outset. In verse 24, Peter is going to remind these slaves about the sin-bearing work of the Savior. You saw that as we read just a moment ago. Peter does not do this for sentimental reasons. I bring this up because this verse is often quoted for the purpose of sentimentality. Let's look at the example of Jesus. What did Jesus do for us? Jesus didn't sin. He didn't deceive, revile, or retaliate. That should make you feel better when you suffer. Beloved, this is way too shallow a reading of this text. Peter is not saying, Hey guys, when times get tough, think about our Savior. He had it rough too. Nobody liked Him. He lost all His friends. People mistreated Him. Can you feel the suffering Jesus? This is not what Peter is communicated. You might file that under empathetic nonsense. Lisa Blowers calls this Hobby Lobby Christianity. I was raised on Jesus, suffering, and sweet tea. That is nonsense. This is not an apostolic pep talk. You can put that out of your mind right now. Just to give you a brief outline of where we're going to go today, we're going to look at the basis of our forgiveness. We're going to look at the purpose of that forgiveness and the fruit of our forgiveness. I'll begin with the basis of our forgiveness the purpose of our forgiveness, and the fruit of our forgiveness. Well, you know in verses 22 and 23 that we looked at last week, we have the behavior of Christ laid out before us that we are to imitate. We are told don't sin because Jesus was without sin. We are not to deceive because Jesus did not deceive. When He was suffering, He did not revile or threaten His enemies, and so we should not our own in the midst of our trial. We are instead to give our case to God. I've got a question for you this morning, beloved. This week when sin was presented to your mind, did you turn away from it? You have been called to follow the pattern of Jesus. Did you follow it this week? Or did you make excuses? Did you compare your sin to someone else's sin, thinking that yours is not as bad? Did you, like Joseph... See the temptation coming and flee from it. If you failed, I would encourage you to remember your advocate. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I would also include that this morning's text is just the remedy that we need when we think there is no way to beat our sin. In verse 24, Peter makes a turn from the pattern that we should follow. Look at it with me. It says that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Now thus far, Peter's been saying, do this, act like this, imitate Jesus in this way. 
But here we come to verse 24 and we see something that we cannot imitate. We see something that we cannot do. We cannot be an atonement for sins. Peter is making a turn in his argument. I bring this up because I want you to know that Jesus' suffering was particularly efficacious for us in ways beyond what we typically think. And that's exactly the point that Peter is going to try and make this morning. However, I also want to remind you, beloved, that your suffering is not meaningless. It is not meaningless. It is not without its own kind of efficacy. Remember what Peter has already told us. He has said that when we suffer for righteousness, this finds favor with God. Church, I would encourage you to consider that the impotence of the church today in the West could largely be due to the fact that Christians, especially Christian men, are unwilling to suffer for Jesus. We are unwilling to suffer for Jesus. I was listening to uh, Presbyterian pastor Tim Bailey this week speaking to fathers about fatherhood and the need for fathers to suffer in view of their children. Now, Pastor Bailey speaks um, a bit like a napalm. He comes in with this heavy shot and scorches the earth. But it benefits you because you're able, through his examples, oftentimes to see what beforehand you were unwilling or unable to see. Tim Bailey, speaking to fathers, says, you absolutely must suffer for Jesus. If you don't suffer for Jesus and your son, or I would say your daughter, is not able to see you suffer for Jesus, he says, I think there's a good chance your children won't grow up to love Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. That sounds a little extreme. I don't know that I would take it that far. Don't, there's exceptions to that. Surely not everybody in this life suffers. Hang on a sec. Pastor Bailey goes on to say, Jesus said that no servant is greater than his master. And if they hated him, they'll hate us too. And if you, Christian father, are managing to live your life in such a way that your relatives, your brothers-in-law, your sisters-in-law, your in-laws, your own parents, your own brothers and sisters, your boss, if you're living your life in such a way that you don't suffer for the name of Christ, I think it's entirely possible that your children will judge you as not loving Jesus and will judge you a hypocrite. And he concludes by saying, I would find great difficulty in arguing with them. Consider, church, we are all called to suffer for Jesus. And our suffering benefits those who see us suffering. Imagine a young child who's awakened in the middle of the night. Here's a disturbance somewhere in the home. Looks, sounds like there might be a scuffle. He gets out of bed and runs into the living room and sees his dad fighting an assailant who's broke into the house in the middle of the night. The mother is screaming, terrified. She tries to get on the phone, calls the police. By the time the police arrive, dad is a mess. He's been hurt badly. But the police are able to capture the assailant and cart him off to jail. Now tell me something about that boy who saw his dad fighting for his mom and their protection. What's going on in his mind? Ain't nobody going to touch my mom. Why? Because I just saw my dad give his life for her. It makes a difference. Our suffering in this life matters tremendously. 
The favor of God that is on us when we suffer for righteousness is a potent favor. Whether you see it or not, suffering for righteousness always accomplishes something. something. It is never wasted. Stop being afraid of suffering for Jesus. I encourage you, if you've considered it to this point, coming out on the sidewalk and advocating with us for the unborn, come on, don't be afraid. Come suffer for Jesus. Fathers, bring your sons with you. Bring them with you. They will hear and see things that are shocking and disturbing. And they will see a dad who is standing for Jesus. And it will have an impact on their life. Well, after hearing about this seemingly impassable, this seemingly impossible pattern to follow in verses 22 and 23, Jesus was without sin, he was without reviling. You may come to the point of thinking, I just don't understand how I could live that way. I just don't understand how it's possible to live for Jesus the way that he exemplified. How he lived, I don't think that I could live that way. Imagine one of these household slaves who's considering the beatings that he receives on a daily basis. And then he hears Peter say, Jesus was without sin. Jesus never reviled his enemies. Jesus never turned around and threatened. There might be a hopelessness that arises. I, but I'm not Jesus. I can't do that. I am incapable of following that example. Do you know how much pressure is put on me? Do you know how difficult it is when my master loses his cool? Do you know that I am trying to stand for God? And this is so hard. And verse 24 answers those objections with a triumphal, Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. He begins... Peter does, with a brief description of the atoning work of Christ. First, let's look at our sins. He says, in verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Which sins, beloved? Which sins? This particular phrase right here, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, is taken from three separate verses in Isaiah 53. And in the Septuagint, they read as follows in verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bears. In verse 11, He will bear their iniquities. In verse 12, He Himself bore the sins of many. Now it might sound a little novel, but when Jesus bore your sins, He bore every single one of them, past, present, and future. You might consider your life before Christ and think, I was a wicked and vile person. And when you came to Christ, you celebrate the triumph of Jesus over those dark years of your life. But beloved, Jesus died for every sin in the future. And He died for the sins that you might or will commit today. Every one of them, Jesus took to the cross. Can I ask you a question, beloved? Who are you? What is your identity do you walk around telling people, I am a sinner saved by grace? Can I ask you a challenging question? When does the Bible talk about you that way? When does the Bible talk about you that way? You remember I talked about last week how much of the glory of the gospel is past tense. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. 
That doesn't make us sinless. That doesn't mean that we have no flesh left to deal with. But why do we as Christians walk around and identify ourselves with who we used to be slaves to, whom we are slaves to no longer? Jesus has set us free, and this is exactly the point that Peter is trying to make. Peter goes on to say that our sins he himself bore in his body. Now I would bring up an interesting question, and young people, you might consider this. Perhaps you've never thought about this before. How is it that a holy and righteous God could accept the work of Christ on our behalf? If you imagine a courtroom scene where a guilty man walks into the courtroom, he's guilty of, we'll say, murder, and somebody comes up as the guilty verdict is pronounced and says, hey, you know what, I'll pay that penalty for them. What is actually going on in that moment? If the judge allows that exchange to take place, is he not letting someone who is truly in the wrong go free? and someone who did nothing to deserve death face the punishment that they shouldn't have to face. Proverbs says something similar. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to Yahweh. This is what Paul Washer calls the divine dilemma. God, you might say, has a big problem on his hands. He desires to secure a bride for his son, but all of mankind have fallen in Adam and are punishable now by death. He can't condemn the righteous and he can't acquit the guilty. He can't just let them go free and punish those who have done no wrong. It would be an abomination to do either. So how did he do it, beloved? How did he do it? This is the glory of the gospel. This is the precise point of the gospel that makes everything matter. And that is the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. That is the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul encourages Timothy with these words. He says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Your ESV reads, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the witness for this proper time. The word ransom in Greek is the word antilutron. Anti meaning in place of, and lutron meaning ransom. Jesus took our place so identifying with us that God put our sin on Christ as though He were the one who had committed it. That is where the substitute comes in. That is how God could set us free. That Jesus Christ was made to be sin, though He knew no sin. He became our substitute sacrifice. Consider all the imagery in the Bible. God killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve. Why? Because they were naked and ashamed. And they needed a covering. There had to be a covering provided. The offering of Isaac. Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his own son. The Passover lamb, which Jeremy mentioned 
earlier this morning, was without blemish and for the sins of the people. Also in the Levitical law, the sin offering and the guilt offering on the day of atonement, the scapegoat, the entire Hebrew sacrificial system is based on this idea of a substitute. We cannot pay the price for our own sins. Children, have you considered there is nothing that you can do to pay the price for your own sins? No amount of work, effort, good deeds, nothing that you could do will pay that price. It has to be paid for you and it has to be paid in such a way that somebody doesn't just come into the judge and pay him off. It has to be paid as though you were actually being punished for the sin. And this is exactly what Jesus did when he became a ransom for us. He took the full wrath of God. Again, in 1 Peter verse 24, Jesus bore our sins. The Greek word is aneneken, which means to offer. Hebrews uses this word in regard to Jesus' offering up himself. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up, same word that we use there in 1 Peter 2.24 for bore. He does not need to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once for all when he bore, offered up himself. From Genesis 22 verse 2 from the Septuagint. Then God said, take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and bear him and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Not only was Christ the sin-bearing substitute, he was also the great high priest who offered himself to God. He is the priest making the offering and he is the offering. What a savior. What a savior. And then Peter chooses an interesting phrase. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Does your translation read tree? It's a good translation. The question is, why didn't Peter choose the Greek word for cross? Why didn't he say he bore our sins on the cross? The Greek word kulon means wood or tree. Stauros is the Greek word for cross. Peter could have used it, uses it in other places. Here he chooses the word for wood or tree. Why? He was likely referring back to Genesis 21. And in Genesis 21, we read these words. If a man has committed sin, the judgment of which is death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day because cursed of God is he who is hanged so that you may not make unclean your land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. What is so significant about Deuteronomy 21? Beloved, this is so good and this is exactly why Peter brings this up to the household slaves at this moment 
in the midst of their suffering and they're looking to the example of Christ and saying, I don't know how I could possibly follow that example. Beloved, your sins don't just make you guilty before God. They curse you. They curse you. And I'm going to talk about this more in the next section. But this is the truth of what Jesus did. When he substituted, he didn't just take your guilt. He took your curse. He took the curse of God off of you. We've talked in the past about Augustine's four states of man. You remember that pre-fall man was able to sin and able not to sin. He had no curse. But man after the fall was not able not to sin. He could not help but sin because of the curse. But regenerate man has that curse removed. And now he is able not to sin anymore. He has been set free. No more let sins and sorrows groan, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Beloved, this is what's going to take all of your faith to grasp today. But that curse which bound you to sinning is gone. It is no more. You are not in a state anymore where you are given as a slave to sin. You have been set free. Now, let's look at the purpose of forgiveness. Peter has said, He himself bore our sins as a substitute in his body on the tree, taking the curse off of us. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, your ESV reads, might die to sin. I don't prefer that reading it's not entirely wrong. Might die is one way that you could translate it. I do prefer the way that the Legacy Standard or the Christian Standard Bible or the Young's Literal translates it. Um, and that is having died to sin. It puts it entirely in the past tense. And the verb died is an aorist verb. It is in the past tense. So it's a great reading to put it having died to sin. Listen to how God speaks of our sin after our conversion. In Romans 6, you get the greatest treatment of this. He says, we died to sin, Romans 6, 2. He says in Romans 6, 6, our old man was crucified with Christ. Our body of sin was done away with. We are no longer slaves to sin. Romans 6, 7, he who has died has been justified from sin. Romans 6.11, we are told that as Christ died to sin, we also should consider ourselves dead to sin. Romans 6.17 and 18, we were slaves of sin, but we have been set free from sin. Past tense, past tense, past tense, past tense, over and over and over again. This is the way that God wants Christians to think about their sin. You have been set free. It is a done work. The curse is removed. It is finished. And yet we so often act like we have a 
kind of sin Stockholm syndrome. I wonder if you've ever heard of Stockholm syndrome before. This is not a perfect illustration, but bear with me. This is a mental condition in which the feelings of hostages change during their captivity towards those who have captured them. Three things typically come up when you think of Stockholm Syndrome. The first is a captive develops a positive relationship with a captor. Secondly, there's a refusal by captives to cooperate with police and other authorities. Thirdly, the captor is no longer perceived as a threat. They're even considered humane. And those who have been captured hold or come to hold similar values as the one who captured them. I wonder, beloved, are you suffering today from sin Stockholm Syndrome? Let me ask, do you have a positive relationship with your sin? When you think of your sin, do you consider that it is less offensive to God than other people's sins? As Thomas Brooks says, do you paint sin with virtue's colors? Beloved, do you entertain sin and ideas about sin because what you tend to get from your sin is pretty positive. It's so good, it can't really be sinful. One more beer won't hurt. One more pill. A second glance at those legs. It's no big deal. They're just a child's legs. That man and I were spending time alone together, but we were discussing spiritual matters. Surely God makes room for that. It would have been so hurtful if I would just told him the truth. So I said what I said for love's sake. Are you creating a positive relationship with the sin from which you have been set free? Do you refuse to obey God? God has demanded you to put to death the deeds of the body, but you make excuses all the time. God requires absolute allegiance in your heart, but God doesn't understand, doesn't God understand that the flesh will always be there in this life? He wrote about that sort of thing in the Bible. And, and this really isn't a sin. People just misunderstand me. I need to defend myself when someone isn't speaking truth to me. Do you consider, beloved, that your sin is no longer a threat? When God commands you to deal violently with your sins, like gouge out eyes, cut off hands, things like that, do you attack them with the zeal of Phineas? Or... Do you handle the procedure with a greater level of care? Well, if you're really violent, you might end up hurting yourself or somebody else. It's not a big sin anyway. No need to get overly aggressive. I'm not nearly as susceptible to it as I used to be. Beloved, are you suffering from sin, Stockholm Syndrome? Are you making excuses for your sin? What's it going to take to get out of the sin that you're in right now? Well, first, get violent. Jesus said, gouge out eyes, cut off arms. I love this story from Numbers 25, the story of Phineas. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought near to his brothers a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting over the sin of the people. And Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest saw it. And he didn't wait around. He arose from the midst of the congregation weeping 
and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the belly or through the belly then the plague of the sons of Israel was checked do you do it with your sin like that when there's sin in your camp do you rise up and say uh-uh that's the way Phineas dealt with it he pierced both of them through the man in his back and the woman through her belly. It doesn't sound like they were in the tent playing phase 10, okay? I mean, he was violent with it. Whatever it takes. I don't care how indecent this is. I'm done with it. No more. Unfortunately, it wasn't without much cost. The plague was stayed at Phineas's action, but not before 24,000 people died of the plague. Brethren... Your sins have been defeated in Christ already. Like I said last week, stop sinning. Stop it. Cut it out. Knock it off. Kick it in the pants. Nip it in the butt. Do whatever it takes because you're free. You don't have to anymore. Peter is telling these household slaves, because of Jesus' atonement and the curse being removed, you have died to sin. Why? So that you might live to righteousness. Beloved, Jesus didn't die to forgive your sins. Let me say that again. Jesus didn't die to forgive your sins. Only. He didn't only die to forgive your sins. He didn't endure the pain and agony of the cross just so you could get a ticket to heaven. This Sacrifice, this atonement of Christ, is not about forensic righteousness alone. That's the way Christians today treat their salvation. I'm free. I'm going to heaven. What am I going to do in the meantime? That's not what Jesus died for. He didn't die so we could choose what we do with the rest of our lives because we've got a free pass. The Son of God didn't pay the price He paid to have the curse removed off of you so you could stay in your sin. He didn't. He had that curse removed so you could walk away from your sin to be able to choose not to sin. This week, um, John 2 and I had lunch one day and we were talking about how people all over the world display what looks like the fruits of the Spirit, right? You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, you see people be gentle. You've seen people be kind. I'm sure Adolf Hitler said something nice to his mom one time, right? But those good deeds, before God removes that curse and the guilt of your sin, are an abomination to God. What does he say? Your righteous deeds are filth. They're ruined loincloths. They're disgusting to me. When Noah was readying the ark for the days of the flood, the Bible describes what was going on. People were marrying and giving in marriage. Well, that's a good thing, right? Hey, at least they were getting married. They weren't running around acting like, you know, pagans or whatever. Even if it was the best that you could possibly imagine, what does the Bible describe pre-flood? God saw man's heart and the intentions of his heart, and what was it? Only evil continually. 
Even the beautiful gift of marriage that God gave us, they were engaging in and it was wickedness to God. No, I don't accept this. Beloved, please don't believe, disbelieve this. You are able to act in a way that pleases God. Your righteous deeds are no longer filthy rags. You should not walk around every day saying, well, I'm just a sinner. Christ has set you free. Stop identifying with your previous captor. I had a brother ask me last week after the sermon if it was possible for a whole for a Christian to go a whole day without sinning. What does Peter say? Look at it with faith. What does Peter say? Can you resist your sin? Yes, you can. Now, I know everybody immediately runs to the ditches, right? But that would mean if I never disobeyed and I did that day after day after day after day, I achieved some sort of sinless perfectionism. Ditch on one side. Wrong. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, Chris, if I can't say that I'm sinless, then I have little hope that I'll be able to make it through the day without sinning. Wrong. Ditch on the other side. Get on the straight and narrow. Keep your eyes on Christ. Trust Him. And if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. But beloved, believe this. You have been set free from your captivity to sin. Look, Peter even gives a further proof at the end of verse 24. He goes on to say this strange phrase. Why does he bring this up? He says, by his, Jesus' wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter quotes this portion of the prophet, Isaiah 53 verse 5, and applies it to our liberation from the curse of sin. The healing that Christ brought was not, here in verse 24, a physical healing. And yes, unfortunately, this verse is often used today to describe how because we're Christians, we should never suffer from physical maladies and all sorts of sickness. We've been healed with the stripes of Christ. There are some Christians who say silly things like, Christ received 39 lashes, one lash for the 39 different categories of illness. So Christ's death heals all possible illnesses. <clears throat> uh, heretical prosperity teacher Kenneth Copeland goes further. Y'all don't tell Wendell that I quoted Kenneth Copeland in the sermon this morning, all right? Heretical prosperity teacher Kenneth Copeland was once asked what he would do if he found out he had AIDS. He said, the moment I woke up in the morning, before I did anything else, I'd take communion. Well, congratulations, sir. You're sinning by not doing that in the context of the local church. I'd say, I'd take Jesus' pure blood shed for me. Then I'd rebuke the devil. And then all day long, I'd thank God for my healing. And then in the afternoon, I'd praise God and receive communion again. Why? To remind myself that the blood of Jesus is in my veins. That night before bed... I'd receive communion again. That's a lot of communion. And I'd say, well, I'm going to bed tonight with the taste of his blood and his body in my mouth. If I woke up in the night, I'd reach over and get my Bible and I'd read all the healing scriptures again. 
and I'd praise myself back to sleep. This is still Kenneth Copeland quoting here. By the way, this will work to rid your body of any sickness if anyone will just do it. Finally, he concludes, Is God responsible for AIDS? No. The news is going to get out that God is healing people of AIDS. Well, beloved, that is a very confused and misguided individual. He will stand in judgment for this ridiculous teaching. But I ask you, consider, Jesus' stripes did heal us. What did they heal us from? The curse. That curse made you unable to live a righteous life. Now how will you stand, beloved, before God when He asks you, after you professed Christ how you decided to continue in your pattern of sin. What if he says, Jesus told you to deal violently with it. Why did you not? What if you made excuses for it? You made light of it. You did not seek to be disciplined out of it. The household slave hears the pattern of Christ and he responds, how could I live like that? You here today have the full account of the pattern of Christ in your lap right now. This is everything in the Word of God. Peter leaves neither the slaves nor us with an excuse that we can't live for righteousness. He says, look at those wounds on Jesus' back. The dominion of sin you are healed from. That's what he's talking about. That's why he goes so far as to say, by his wounds, by his stripes, you have been healed. When you think, when you take communion today and you think about the sufferings of Christ, rejoice, praise God, celebrate, sing as loud as you can because that curse is no longer on you. It's gone. There's this idea in business today, beloved, called a, a sunk cost. I wonder if you've ever heard that term before. A sunk cost is money that has already been spent and it cannot be recovered. Think of the prodigal son squandering his father's wealth. Church, the years of your life that you gave to sin, you can't get back. That's a sunk cost. Those days are over. The time is spent. So stop making excuses for still living in sin. Stop putting money into the broken down car that is never going to run again. You know the God that we serve. He is in the business of restoring the years that locusts ate up. It is human nature to let the past define you. Don't do that. What Peter is communicating about Christ's death and what he'll communicate even further next week when we conclude with verse 25 is that whether you are a slave to someone in this life or not, you're not a slave to sin anymore. You don't have to invest in sin anymore. You don't have to serve it anymore. You are free. And it is expected that because of Christ's gift to you, you will turn that talent around and use it for the sake of righteousness. As Jesus died for all of your squandering of the Father's wealth, for your sunk costs, 
He in His substitutionary atonement for your sin gives you freedom to walk free from the curse. And you can, brethren, no longer walk in sin. Do you believe that? Then go forward today and refuse sin. And for Jesus' kingdom, live for righteousness. Let's pray. Father, there are truths in the scripture that are so glorious, it is hard to believe that they are true. But this is exactly what your word reveals to us. How could we ever measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ? Well, the third person of the Trinity lives inside of us. And the curse that binds us to sin and to sinning has been completely removed. And then you yourself command us. You know how my father's perfect? Be perfect like him. And Lord, even, even our, our theology at times, we use as an excuse. Well, the Bible never says I can be perfect, so what's, what's the point of even trying? I'm never going to be perfect. And yet this gift is open before us because of the wounds of Jesus. We can walk triumphantly in Christ. If we sin, we have an advocate. The bleeding charity. And oh, let us receive it quickly when we sin. But Father, help us not to make excuses for our sin. Help us not to allow it in our lives anymore. Let us put it away from ourselves. And as we are called to surely suffer in this life, help us to suffer for the sake of righteousness, knowing that you have completely enabled us to do that. Oh, be with us now as we eat and fellowship. May our conversation continually again and again lead us back to the work of Christ, our substitute on our behalf. It is in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, we are going to convert this room as we typically do to our dining hall. Um, I'd ask for the men and the young men, the boys, to help us with that. Um, after we get this room set up and the ladies give us a cue, we will go through the line having prayed for our food and collect our food. Uh, if you're a visitor with us, we do have a communion table back here at the end of the line. And if you're curious whether or not you can take communion with us, this week we put a little blurb at the very back of your bulletin about our communion. Here at Christ the King, we practice what we call close communion. Close is in proximity. And what that means is described for you in these short little paragraphs on the back of your bulletin. If you have questions about that, please feel free to come and talk to Jeremy or myself. We'd be glad to answer your questions about that. Let the word of Christ, beloved, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>